with me. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Uh, if you weren't here last week, we were not in Luke. I gave my testimony from 20 years ago. So 20 years ago last month, me and my wife came to Christ on the same day. If you didn't get a chance to catch that, it is up on the website, Calvary Chapel of Richmond. Dot com and you can uh, listen to that, and hopefully it'll bless you uh, what the Lord did in our life. But uh, as I told everybody else last week, every testimony is special and unique because every single soul matters to the Lord. And I hope that uh, all of us will have more chances to share our testimony with people around us. So uh, we're back in Luke 14 today. I'll be picking up with where we left off a couple weeks ago. Uh, we covered all the way through verse 24. So I'll be reading verses 25 through 35, and we'll finish out chapter 14 today. Uh, if you're here with us, we go verse by verse through the Bible. Primarily, I do some topical things from time to time, uh, but uh, we're in Ezekiel on Wednesdays, Luke on Sundays. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll be glad to put one in your hand, and then I will begin reading Luke chapter 14, starting with verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish it? All uh, who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build what he was not able to finish, or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever you does not forsake all that he has, cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Father, we pray that we would hear not only with our ears, but with our heart, our hearts open, soft, pliable by your Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Unlike so many ministries today, and not just today, this would have been in past decades and centuries as well, but Jesus was never fixed on numbers, was he? He didn't equate numbers and people and crowds as evidence that they had collectively all turned away from the world. Though he had large crowds, Multitudes, it says here in the text, and we know this is true in many other places where he went. And though he had large crowds following him, he wasn't impressed that they were coming to hear him. People are easily impressed. Oh, everyone wants to hear me. Jesus was not impressed by the groups, the large crowds coming to hear him. He knew that many of them wanted something from him. Food, healing, comfort. But he knew that they weren't 
many of them weren't surrendered to him. They wanted something from him, but they weren't surrendered to him. And from the parable in the text, if you remember verses 15 through 25 of that great supper, we know, we know that Jesus desired greatly to see his father's house filled with souls, didn't he? So much that he would continue to send out wave after wave to go to the uttermost. He desired to see his house filled with those souls that had been delivered from sin and delivered from darkness, those who had been truly converted. That was his desire. That was the Father's desire. But the invitation to the great supper with the Master meant something for those who received the invitation. Remember, all these verses are connected. Those that received the invitation, they would have to drop everything and head in that direction. Walking those dusty and difficult roads, some of them may have had to travel farther distance than others, just to get there. While some would change, you know, you think about ministry in the body of Christ down through the ages. While some would change just about anything to accommodate people's priorities, people's preferences, and people's comforts, and not only to keep the crowds coming, but also what? To grow and even swell the numbers of the crowd. Not satisfied with big crowds, could we have way bigger crowds? While many would do just about anything to compromise and to lay aside anything to meet people's priorities, preferences, and comforts, Jesus did the exact opposite, didn't he? The complete opposite. He said things that rather than further swelling the ranks would actually thin the crowds. You know, somewhat, some church consultants might say, Jesus, this, this approach is not good if you really want to see a lot more people. What you just said offended, 90, we, we've calculated it offended 92%, 92.3 to be exact, of all the people that just heard what you said. Why was Jesus not trying to swell the numbers, mirror his speech, to what they wanted him to say. Why? Well, because he loves people. He loves them at the soul level, right? He wasn't focused on ministry success. That he, in many respects, was achieving and actually torpedoed to some degree with these kind of words. No, he wasn't focused on ministry success. He wasn't focused on the praise of men. He was focused on their souls, what they really needed. Not what they thought they needed, but what they actually needed. There's what you and I think we need, and then there's what God says, no, that's not, your thoughts are not my thoughts. Here's what you actually need. As Sam Nadler said a few weeks back, love warns. How about that for a hashtag these days? Love warns. Jesus' focus was to eternally save souls. And for those saved souls to go on to walk as his disciples. His disciples maturing and growing till what? Till their commission was complete. Because it's appointed on a man wants to die. There's a commission to be completed for those that have been saved and called in the Lord. His closing charge to the church, you know it well, most of you do, if you're 
not someone that normally attends church, and maybe this is your first time in a church, this might be unfamiliar, but I'd say the majority of you, you're familiar with the closing charge of the church before Jesus ascended to heaven. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples. Not converts. Not decisions. Not, we have 500 cards filled out. Although that can be part of the process of a disciple being born again and becoming a disciple. But go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That's going to require a lot of fanning out, isn't it? All the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This would be saved souls, accepted by the Father, through the blood of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and by the will of God, multiplying. But the message we carry is the same as Jesus, or it's supposed to be, to receive eternal life, for people to come to Christ and receive eternal life, means to turn away from sin, away from self, away from this fallen world. It's a complete turning away from those things. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, Forsaking All. We'll look at three things from the text, the call the cost, and the contrast. The call, the cost, and the contrast. Excuse my voice a little bit this morning. If anyone else has allergies, I'm right there with you. So, uh, but so far, I have to say, I haven't used a single Claritin this fall. There's Rich. Thanks to your milk and someone else's raw honey, I'm not going to preach any more about that, but I'm just saying. (laughs) Not a single Claritin so far this year. Raw honey and milk, raw milk, there, maybe there is something, that whole milk and honey thing, you know, when they, you know, so. Anyway, I digress. But if you, if my voice is getting on your nerves, I'm just warning you. But there are pastors, um, when we look at this, this text here, there are pastors, scholars, and theologians, uh, both past and present, that I read and respect, and God has used in a great way, that believe and teach um, that not all Christians... And a Christian is someone whose name is written right now, written forever in the the Lamb's Book of Life. That not all Christians, those who are truly born again, are disciples of Christ. Again, there's pastors, theologians, scholars that that have written on this and don't believe that all Christians are disciples of Christ. But they all believe that all true disciples of Christ are Christians. They don't believe all Christians are disciples, but they believe all true disciples are definitely Christians. Uh, I actually don't see it that way. The most common term for followers of Christ in the gospel and Acts is, guess which word? Disciple. 264 times in Acts and in the gospels. And the word Christians only a few times in the New Testament uh, at all means little Christ or follower of Christ. Now, while I have no doubt, none whatsoever, uh, that many have been saved and went to, went to be with the Lord uh, before ever being discipled, many have been saved before ever being discipled. The thief on the cross is a great example of that. Um, many uh, have been saved before they ever were able to live as disciples in Christ. 
I think we would all agree on that. People have asked the Lord in their heart when planes are going down, when ships are going down. They never had a chance to be a disciple. They never were discipled. So God has saved many people that didn't walk as disciples. But I believe this, too, that the preponderance of Scripture indicates that a true born-again Christian and a disciple are two sides of the same coin. A true born-again believer and a disciple of Christ, two sides of the same coin. The indwelling of the Spirit compels the Christian, someone who's truly been saved, someone who now has the gratitude of, thank the Lord He saved me from sin and hell and shame and guilt. Someone that has really been converted of this, Jesus said, to whom much is given, or, or the one who's been forgiven much, will what? Love much. But the preponderance is that the indwelling of the Spirit compels the Christian to become a disciple in obedience to Christ. Turn with me briefly to another passage that bears this out. Turn over to the book of John. John chapter 6, starting in verse 54. This is another one of these times where Jesus had a great group following him, And instead of um, saying things that would actually cultivate not only those that are there to really be comfortable, but he actually says things would actually spurn others from coming. Uh, Again, not because he doesn't want them to stay, not because he doesn't want others to come, but because he wants those that stay and come, that their conversion and their following be genuine. Amen? That you want the real thing in life, right? You would, have, you, you would like someone to painstakingly, you're about to buy a diamond, you think it's real. You say, hold on, I, I know someone that actually knows a lot more about diamonds than me. Do you want them to just look at it, you send a picture on your phone, on the computer, where they really can't tell, or would you rather them painstakingly go over it and say, no, that's, I'm sorry to tell you this, but that is a fraud. And so Jesus uh, went through the effort to make sure that his followers knew that their following him was from a heart level secure. That they know that they really uh, had been changed and they know that they had desired uh, to be in that walk with the Lord. So starting in verse 54, uh, Jesus says these words, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has, what? Eternal life. This isn't just about Discipleship or not discipleship, this is about eternal life he's talking about. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's most surely speaking of salvation in itself here. Not just those are disciples, those are not disciples. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. We have to have him in us to be saved, and... We have to be abiding in him, and those who are saved will want to abide in him. He goes on, verse 57, as the Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogues he taught in Capernaum, they're on the north side of the Galilee. Verse 60, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this saying, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? Notice they didn't say, this is a hard saying, 
Jesus, help us understand it. Come back to that. It's important how they answer. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? Yes, Jesus will offend us. Every person on earth, Jesus will offend, but for good reason that we would come to our senses. Amen? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. See, salvation starts with belief, and discipleship starts with belief. You have to believe that Jesus will is trustworthy to be a disciple. First, you have to believe in his word to be saved and say, I believe that I'm a sinner and I believe that I need to cry out for salvation. But then you have to still believe his words when he says, now follow me, take up your cross and be a disciple. But he says, some of you don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Judas isn't the only person to betray Christ. Many so-called Christians are betraying Christ right now. Denying his word, siding with the world, siding with the enemy. They have already betrayed him and put him to an open shame. And you and I, we've all been guilty at times of doing this when we've just kind of shirked. Or God says, hey, tell them about me. And we were too afraid and didn't. Right? Because he would never have betrayed himself. He would have spoke. So we're all guilty of this at some level. Uh, But he's talking again uh, about this is someone who perpetually refuses to believe and to follow the Lord. In verse 65, and he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. There's this whole thing about sovereign grace and free will. We won't get into all that at this time uh, because both are found in Scripture. But turn back to Luke uh, 14. What I wanted to uh, show there again is once again, and it says after that, many from that time, it goes on to say from that time, many turned away and followed him no more. From that time, many turned away. That, again, big crowds, if you're focused on big crowds, you don't say things like this. But if you're focused on everyone within the crowd having an authentic conversion and walking and serving the Lord till their commission is up, you do say those things because the truth sets people free, not pacifying ears. And Jesus never pacified the ears. He spoke the truth because he loved us that much. Paul said, have I become your enemy? Because I tell you what? The truth. Because the truth is so important. Let's look at these three things that uh, are in the text that we'll uh, examine together. First, the call in verses 25 through 27. There's a clear call here. If anyone comes to me, uh, Jesus says, you have to hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, your own life, and oh, by the way, take up your cross and follow me. That's quite a call, isn't it? This call is to serve. We'll come back to this word hate because I know that some of you, maybe if you've never studied it, you say, whoa, whoa, what is that all about? We'll get to that in a second. But first, this call, this call is to serve. This call is to obey and to please Christ above everything else. Seek first his kingdom, right? Everything else added. Everything else is secondary. Obey him, serve him, please him above everything else. Seek first his kingdom, making everything else a distant second. Now, we have to ask ourselves, Christian, how do you and I use our time, our talent, and our treasure 
that reflects that we love Christ far above everything else. You know the old thing, is there enough evidence to convict of us being followers of Christ? Is, is our use, that's all we really have, all we've been given is our time, talent, and treasure, there's nothing else. I mean, that's the molecules of our life that actually bear out. We've only been given our time, our talent, and our treasure. Those are what we've been given to somehow use. Paul said he uses like what? He poured it out like a drink offering. All of his time, all of his talent, all his treasure. That doesn't mean that you can't have a full-time job and you, you can't enjoy your family, all that stuff. But it just means that those things always are secondary to Christ leading in every aspect of our life. And this is what Jesus is calling to. What a statement he makes here in verse 26. He does not hate his father and mother, sisters, brothers, the family, even your own self. Uh, but actually this word hate is not, not the way that we would normally think of the word hate. It doesn't mean, I hate you. Can't stand you. Now that I serve Jesus, I hate your guts. <laughs> I used to like you, but now that I'm saved, I can't stand you anymore. There's people that have been saved and read this and actually thought that's what it means. Now, they may not have expressed it quite that poorly, but they kind of thought that that's what it meant, but that's not what it means. The meaning of the word, the rendering of the word here, it means a lesser love. That all of our other loves should be lesser in comparison. So the word hate, you can actually put in your Bible, if you like to write in your Bible, put in parentheses, lesser love. In other words, it would read something like this. If anyone comes to me and does not have a lesser love... For his father, mother, wife. Does that make better sense? Yeah, see, that would actually refute Scripture because the Scriptures tell us to love our neighbor as ourself and your spouse is actually your neighbor too and they're actually your brother and sister in Christ and you're supposed to love even your enemies. So there's no way Jesus was saying to hate these. But it, what it really means, the context of that word means lesser love. Have a lesser love for everyone else than for Christ. Christ reserves the highest love place in our life. And that has to be cultivated, doesn't it? Just like you have to cultivate your love relationship with your spouse, you have to cultivate a love relationship with your kids. Sometimes people will annoy you. Maybe this morning someone annoyed you. You have to cultivate a love for them in spite of, well, Jesus will never annoy you, but he will sometimes jostle you a little bit because he's going to bring us to the place we need to be. But we have to have a love for him that's above anything else, any other motives, even ourselves. And, you know, there's a lot of talk in the modern age about self-esteem. There shouldn't be because people actually love themselves, no matter what they say. The Bible makes this clear. Everyone loves themselves. Matter of fact, self-esteem issues uh, oftentimes too much of a self-fixation. That's one of the big problems. Put your eyes on Christ and self-esteem issues, the way that they're defined today, will actually fade away when we turn our eyes upon the Lord. Now, this love for Christ that would supersede family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in this place. I mean, the love for Christ is to supersede all, but uh, that can actually be misunderstood as well. There are people that have abandoned. You've seen this probably in your life. If, you, if you've been saved for many years, let's say you grew up in a church environment, you've all heard the stories of 
the pastor that never had time for his kids, the deacon that was always somewhere else but never with his family, the elders that were always working on church problems but never working on their home. Well, that's unscriptural anyway. But there are people that have abandoned their family for the sake of ministry. Supposedly for Christ. That's not biblical. That's not the intent of Christ. That's not at all what Jesus is saying or talking about. He's not at all saying that you should abandon your family. Now that you love me more than everyone else, you don't hate them, but you love me so much more that you don't have near as much time for them anymore. That's not what he's saying either. We're supposed to. Now, how do we know? We, we judge Scripture with Scripture. All, the whole counsel of God. That's why you have to know the whole Scripture. If you're a husband, you love your wife as Christ loved the church. Well, that's a pretty tall order. And at the same time, you're supposed to love Jesus more than her. So when you love Jesus more than her and you love your wife as Christ loved the church, she, gets, she benefits very well. I didn't say that very well, but she still benefits. My English gets worse as I preach. Uh, You'll find this to be the case. It was much better when I was younger. We're to love our children and to train them up. Now, if you weren't involved in their lives, how would you be able to train them up? So you have to be involved in their life, loving them. Father's not provoking them to wrath, raising our children. So you couldn't possibly... Read this and say, well, I think he means I'm not supposed to be near as involved anymore with my family because I love Jesus so much. And really, people have done this. Their, their life gets way out of balance. Where were you all week? Well, I was street witnessing on Monday. I was over here. I was doing this. Have you seen your family this week? No, because the world is dying and going to hell. But that's not what he means. We're supposed to love the Lord, but we're supposed to love our Husbands and wives, children, be ministering to people, loving those people that God's put in our life. And our love for Christ will actually manifest a more pure love for them. There are also those, on the other hand, so we've got the one extreme, people that actually abandon everybody because they feel like, I need to be serving and loving Christ so I no longer have time for the family. Can't even have dinner with you guys because I'm at eight Bible studies this week. Not biblical. There are also those that have abandoned the work of Christ and his ministry for their families. So you've got the complete opposite end over here. You've got those that have little or no time for the Lord, no time for serving alongside of other Christians, no time for worshiping, no time for fellowship, no time with gathering with other saints because, and Jesus talked about this in the previous text, I've got a lot of family commitments. And because of my family, I am not able to do this, 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 this. Even if there are things that Jesus is saying, I bid you to come to these. Forsake not the assembling. Be in fellowship. Iron sharpens iron. Be in discipleship. So now, what is the balance? Well, the Holy Spirit makes that clear in your life. That's why you have to be in the Word. He'll, He'll make sure that you are, on the one hand, loving Christ above everyone else. Secondly, loving your family and serving them first. Matter of fact, you can't be a bishop, an elder, pastor, if you don't rule and manage and serve your own household well. So you wouldn't even be able to do that. But then on the other hand, you can't love and have so much just focus on, well, this is our family stuff that we never have time for the Lord. That's 
problematic as well. And Jesus has spoken to some of that in the previous verses. And another question on that one too is, for people, for Christians that don't have any time for the church, any time for ministry, any time for Bible studies, any time that are on the opposite end of the person that's all doing that and never time with their family, the question is, is Jesus not family? Is Jesus not family? Could we ever say, Lord, Lord, I don't have time for you because I, I have to spend it all with my family. Jesus said, I am your family. Think about this. In heaven, we won't be married anymore. We won't have the same exact family and nuclear family relationships, but guess what? We'll have the same relationship with Jesus as we do now. We'll be his bride and we'll be his sons and daughters. So that family, again, supersedes. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, my family supersedes your family. And we get it out of balance. A lot of times in the American church, they put their family here and Jesus' family here. And then we got, the, like I said, the other problem is people that put ministry family, which is actually not biblical teaching, but, and then they put their family so far down here. And the Lord is saying, if you're my disciple, you'll end up having the right balance. You'll have the right balance. Notice the conditions of verse 27. Whoever does not bear his cross cannot, uh, who doesn't bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Disciple So the disciple that Jesus is speaking of, Jesus says disciple equals, is an equal sign, disciple equals cross bearer. Is what Jesus is making the point. Disciple is a cross bearer. My cross will be different than your cross. Will we all agree with that? My cross will not be the same as your cross. It'll be a different color. Might weigh a little different. The dimensions will be different. The length of time I carry it will be different. The distance I carry it will be different. Yours will be different than the person sitting beside you and behind you and in front of you. The cross will not be the same. God may even allow a different cross in different seasons. Notice the personal nature of what he says. Anyone who does not bear his cross. His cross. Each person has been given by the Lord a cross. You know, people will misuse, well, that's not my cross to bear. You've heard that cliche, right? It may not be. On the other hand, it could be. Depends on, depends on how soft our hearts are. It very well may, some things are not my cross to bear and not your cross to bear. But sometimes we'll say, that's not my cross to bear. And God says, oh, yes, it is. Who told you it wasn't? So it's still personal, though. It's not going to be the same cross, but it will be a cross and it will be in the will of God, what cross we're given. Personal. But here's the thing. Even though God may allow a different cross in different seasons, maybe the cross is heavier now than it was last year or last month. Maybe next year it'll be a little lighter in different seasons. I I do believe that the cross is not the same in every season of our life. But he's promised to not give us more than we can bear. Do we believe that? Do we trust him? Do you trust your spouse if, if your spouse says, I promise to make you dinner? You say, I don't believe you. You're not trustworthy. Can you imagine? That's what we say to Christ if we say, I don't really trust you. 
It's an assault on his love and character. We have to say, Lord, I trust you. If you said you won't give me more than I can bear, then you mean it. You won't give me more than I can bear. My friend and pastor friend, Billy Rutledge down in Hatteras, he often states that the American church essentially tells people that the cross they'll be called to bear is made of balsa wood. You guys know what balsa wood is? It's light as a feather. That's not what God promises either. Because when, they, when he said cross, they understood the connotation, made, connotation meant what? Roman cross. There was nothing fun about it. There was nothing simple about it. There was nothing easy about it. There certainly was any pers- no personal glory in it. So these are difficult things that Jesus is saying. How many of us would trade our cross with Pastor Saeed's in Iran? And yet we can sometimes complain about our cross when the Lord says, I'm, I've never given more than you can bear, and I haven't even given people that are in way worse places more than they can bear because where we are, the Lord is there with us to help us bear that burden. We're not tr- we're not, but we're not being called to trade crosses. Aren't you glad of that? We're not called to trade crosses. He doesn't say, go get somebody else's. He says, your cross. We're not called to trade crosses. We're not called to fashion our own cross. Say, God, I know that you gave me a cross, but I made a different one. Is this one okay? It fits in my hand. He doesn't say that either. We're told to carry the one we're given. And here's the really cool thing. When we carry the one we're given, it actually helps other people carry theirs. We'll we'll come back to that thought. When we carry the cross we've been given, it helps other people carry theirs. Isn't that great? Don't you want to help other people carry theirs? Carry our own. The best thing we can possibly do to help other people carry theirs. We'll come back to that and how that works. Look look at the cost, verse 28. Um, For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first, count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. He goes on and says, lest he's not able to lay the foundation. Talks about, uh, will he actually have the materials uh, to finish it. Uh, if you're going to do a job, you estimate what you're going to need, time, how, many ma- how much materials, time and materials, and do I have the financial resources and the time resources to complete the job? He talks about a king in verse 31, a king going to make war, sits down and has to consider, is with 10,000 he able to meet uh, an army with 20,000? Now, in ancient history, plenty of times that's the case. You could have 10,000 men with superior weapons, over 20,000 men with inferior weapons. So that is possible. But on the other hand, he says, or maybe send a delegation and ask for conditions of peace. The call and the cost are joined at the hip. Understand that, right? Because the cost is the cross. That's the cost. The The cross is the cost. They're joined at the hip. It's embedded in the call. That make sense? The cost is embedded in the call. And, but Jesus takes the time to explain that we have to understand the call. Aren't you glad when, when you're given, a, maybe in your job, when you're given a task, you always are more appreciative and able to complete the task when you understand why you're doing the task. Right? If someone just says, go fill that bucket. I hate when they talk to me that way. Right? If someone says, go fill the bucket, we're going to wash such and so. We're going to wash this wall because it's got understanding the reason. So Jesus takes a little bit of time here to say, the call is important, but understand 
It's worth it. A little bit of context behind it. Now, he does that throughout his entire ministry, certainly not just in this text. He takes the time to explain we have to understand the call, so we're better fitted for what? Better fitted for perseverance. We need to be fitted for perseverance. That we're understanding what's required. I like to know, how do you like to, any of you like to know requirements up front? Or do you like to find out after the fact? I tend to like to know what I'm getting into. And Jesus says, this is what you're getting into. You're going to have to count it, understand that it's, it's not a, building a tower is going to take time. Fighting a battle, it's going to take time. It's going to take strength. It's going to take energy. But other times you're going to be wise as a serpent and you're going to have to send conditions of peace. You don't always fight. Sometimes a gentle word will work. There are men such as Warren Wearsby and G. Campbell Morgan uh, that see the man in this, uh, the man building and the king uh, fighting the battle. They see that as Christ. Uh, the majority, I would say the majority of scholars and theologians see it as Jesus portraying this decision process on making a commitment to Christ. That we weigh out, are we going to, are we going to follow Christ for the rest of our life, or are we just looking for a quick fire escape, fire insurance? Because Jesus says that's not really offered. I mean, Lord, I'm, I want salvation, and I'm with you for the long haul. I'm going to abide in you and you in me. So the majority do see it as that way, but again, as Warren Wearsby and G. Campbell Morgan and others see it as the man and the, uh, and the king as a picture of Christ, I'd submit that it's both. Because the Bible, remember the principle of duality we talk about a lot, the Bible means multiple things at the same time. And I believe that's the case, or certainly can be the case here. It's not an either or, but a both. Um, I, personally, I see more Christ as the backdrop, uh, because when you think about if Christ himself is building a tower, he will complete it. Amen? If Christ is fighting a battle, he will complete it. So there's a confidence that the Christ-like picture is it's a done deal. The victory's already won. The conditions of peace, well, he writes them on both ends. So he doesn't really need anyone to broker a peace deal, but he does use you and me in brokering his peace deal. I'll give you a perfect example. The whole world's wicked, but he reserves one man named Noah. We're saved because of that. So he sent conditions of peace to Noah and said, all right, Noah, will you, and remember, dove goes out, gets an olive branch, it's a, it's a picture of that God is the one that preserves peace. So the building of the tower, Jesus will never fail. The winning of the war, he'll never fail. He is the prince of peace. He'll guarantee conditions of peace. So in the backdrop of our commitment, we know he will keep that which we've committed. So I believe it's more of a backdrop than the primary, though, is Jesus saying, now I've already shown you that you will never lose in the end of the age, and that the gates of hell will not prevail against you. He's already said these things, right? So he says, if that's true, you can go ahead and count the cost, and you should come to the logical conclusion and say, following Satan won't really be a good deal. Choosing my own will won't be a good deal. Yes, I volunteer to follow you, Jesus. That would be counting the cost. But many people will count the cost and still come to the conclusion that, no, I really like setting my own agenda my own lifestyle, the way I want to do it. 
So how about this, Lord? If I promise to go to 40 out of 52 Sundays, how about that? I counted the cost, and I came back with a counterproposal. 40 out of 52 Sundays, and three Wednesdays, and one Bible study just for good measure. God says, oh, you know, you can, you can go all the Sundays, all the Wednesdays, all the Bible studies, and still be lost. Or you can just say, I've counted the cost, and I'm following you. No turning back. I believe the primary intent here is to prepare those coming to Christ for the long journey of sanctification in our life. Any of you been saved for a long time, you know God's been peeling many layers off you over the years. It's a long journey of sanctification. Brick by brick, battle by battle. You counted the cost, but you already know Jesus is going to win in the end. So you keep forward. Even when you lose a few skirmishes, like the North lost a few battles against the South. Quite a few, actually. But they won in the end. And Jesus will win in the end. The long journey of sanctification takes time, but we know that he will get us there. Uh, again, you don't get saved to be a disciple. You don't say, I, the day I walked forward to get, see Christ, I decided, Lord, I choose to be saved just to be a disciple. Generally, that's not what happens. Most people don't even know about the whole disciple thing. When they receive Christ, they said, Lord, please be merciful to me, a sinner. And then, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, those that have been truly saved, those that were saved crying out for mercy, those that have been saved saying, Lord, I believe your word, then the Holy Spirit is bubbling up a desire that says, now go be a disciple. The Holy Spirit would never tell us anything otherwise, would he? Do you think the Holy Spirit would ever say, Half of you I save to be just Christians. Half of you I save to be disciples. You'll find out soon which you are. No. Jesus, the same, the same message. Ever. Notice that he's speaking to the entire multitude. He doesn't change. He didn't say, and this applies to those of you in zip code so-and-so. Everybody. Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? He said, if I'm your Lord... I'm also your Savior, and if I'm your Savior, then you'll follow and do these things because I put it in your heart to be a disciple. In other words, he's speaking to the crowds. It's like Jesus saying, if what I'm saying to you resonates, think if you're, at the, think if you're in the multitude that day, and if Jesus is speaking and he's saying these words, and even though they're kind of hard to hear, and even though you say, wow, that, whoa, I did not know I'm supposed to eat his flesh, and what does that even mean? taken up a cross? Am I supposed to be crucified? But you're saying, but something deep down, I can tell he loves me and it's resonating. And I'm like, I want to be with what you're saying. I'm connecting with your spirit. And Jesus says, that is, that's where I can convert you. You're, connect, you're resonating with my love. You're resonating with your need. And salvation and conversion takes place when we bow the knee and then trusting the Spirit and then moving forward with that call and that kind of cost. Let's look at, the, as we come to a close, the contrast here in verses 35, 34 and 35. And look at verse 33 as well. So likewise, he, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. He says again that this is an all proposition. All in me. You're throwing all the chips down at his feet. Lord, 
I'm forsaking all to be your disciple. Two sides of the same coin, Christian and disciple. And then he speaks to this salt. Salt is good. Most of us like salt. It's got to be in moderation if you, you know, you're watching your salt intake and all that stuff. But uh, we understand that salt has so many good properties. Jesus said in Matthew 5.13, he told his disciples that they were the salt of the earth. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Not because there's anything good in us. Those of you who have been saved, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you and I are salt in this earth, not because of us, but in spite of us. Isn't that great to know? Why? Because the best day you've ever lived, and the best days I've ever lived, is still filthy rags. These actually seem like contradictions, don't they? How can we be the salt of the earth when our best day is filthy rags? Because the salt is actually Christ flowing through us. If there's no Christ flowing through us, we really are completely tasteless. We add nothing. We offer nothing. We personally don't add anything. It's Christ in us, the hope of glory, the Scriptures tell us. In the days of Christ, again, understanding why he'd use this word salt, in the days of Christ, salt was part of a soldier's pay. Did you know that? So they were given pay, and they might given, be given um, currency, but also they would be given um, some measures of salt. Salt was very valuable for preserving food, and if you've ever dry hung meat or things like that, you know that salt's used for that. Uh, we use it all around the world, wintertime, roads, and there's so many uses, but salt was very valuable. It could be traded just like currency in a commodity. So part of their soldier's pay was in salt, and it's where we get the phrase, worth his salt, People say, well, I ain't worth their salt. They might not know where it came from, but now they do. Or now, if you didn't know, the words salt and salary, salary, you're paid a salary. The words salt and salary are connected words, very related terms. Salt preserves, sin what? Corrupts. Salt purifies and cleans. You can put salt on wounds. It's good antibacterial. It, it uh, makes and helps in the healing process. Sin makes dirty and filthy. Salt, like truth, stings, but it kills infection. Truth does sting, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus, Jesus loves us enough, but he love warns. Salt adds flavor and makes things better. Uh, I, I like eggs, I really do. I love eggs, but I have to have salt on them. It's not that I wouldn't eat it if there was no salt. If I come to your house and you don't have salt, I'm not going to say a word. I'm just going to eat it. (laughs) But if you have salt, I would prefer it. And pepper too. He doesn't mention pepper here, but I like that as well. (laughs) When you put salt on something, you expect it to have a positive change. You expect it to taste better. But if you put salt on there and it was accidentally sugar, (sighs) you're spitting the eggs out, at least me. If it has no taste at all, you're like, do you have any other salt? Because <laughs> this salt, I'm, it looks like salt, but I'm not tasting any net change here. If the salt has no flavor, it's pointless to put it on our food, right? I mean, if we're going to get high blood pressure, we might as well get the taste out of it, right? <laughs> Otherwise, it has no value. Christians not fulfilling the call of Christ are of no value to the world. Christians not, that's what Jesus is saying, it's thrown out. It's, 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 it has no value. If we're not 
fulfilling the call of Christ, no value to the world, and we're no help to the church, and we're in direct obedience, disobedience to Christ. Now, I want to be clear. All of us as Christians have been, had times in our lives where we've been less salty than other times. And when the world says salty, they mean that in a bad way. He's really salty. When we say it, it's a good thing. It's actually brimming with the Holy Spirit flowing from our life. But there's times in our lives where we've been less salty, less of the Spirit in our life. Why? Well, we've either been not in the Word as much, not in prayer as much, not worshiping as much. It could be trials and tests in our life, whatever it may be. And, and the Lord will bid us like good sheep. He'll pull us back. And He actually can revive saltiness. Isn't that good? You and I, once the salt flavor is gone, it's done, but the Lord can actually... But there's a time period, and that's called the dash between our life, that that happens. And so we have to respond during that time, and he'll actually make us salty again. In fact, we've lost saltiness. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Paul was like, look, some of you have so become light on saltiness that I'm starting to wonder. He says, test yourself. Do not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified. He says, look, if you are in the Lord, there should be an evidence to you and everyone around you that you're salt, you're light, you're following Christ. Daniel J. Evers says, I call it Satan's plan B. If he can't keep you from being saved, he'll try to make you too busy to save others. Spurgeon said, a little more bluntly, have you no wish for others to be saved, then you're not saved yourself, you can be sure of that. They didn't mess around in the 1800s, folks. <laughs> Spurgeon didn't. Uh, I love to quote them because I can actually apply it to them instead of to me. So anyway, um, I mentioned, though, that we're not, I wanted to come back to this. I mentioned that we're not called to trade our crosses with anyone else. But if we've taken up our cross, we are salt that helps others, helps others bear their cross. You know, Pastor Said, I mentioned him. He needs us to carry our cross. He desperately needs us to carry our cross. Our carrying our cross in prayer is chain-breaking. But if Christians who are not even in a jail cell, and they're not, they haven't lost their families, they didn't miss Christmas with their families, they didn't miss Fourth of July with their families, and they won't take the time to not only pray, but even get on their knees and pray, then we're not carrying our cross. Now, there's, I believe there's more God wants us to do than that. But it starts there, doesn't it? Doesn't it start there? Now, if you're unable to get on your knees because of age or health issues, God understands you're on your knees in your heart. I get that too. So you've got to understand that some of these things are spiritual in nature. But where we can do it, we should do it. Amen? We don't ask the same thing of a six-year-old as we do a 16-year-old. But when you mature in the Lord, the Lord's... Paul said, when I was a child, I act like a child. When I became a man, I acted like a man. And Jesus is a mature disciple. You help Pastor Said bear his cross by bearing your own. You help our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. And when we bear, if the whole church in America bore their cross, can you imagine what it would do in our country? Can you imagine if one day every Christian that was truly saved went out and witnessed on the same day? You know, God could do that someday, but it would have to be a revival in the pulpits of America, and there would have to be a connection to the body of Christ, and everybody would have to get on the same page of carrying their cross instead of, this is my cross, I fashion it myself, this is balsa wood, I don't even carry a cross at all, and everything in between. 
And the world looks on and says, and you guys are supposed to have the answers? Now, that's not always the case. There's a lot of wonderful Christians. But again, Jesus is saying, the point is, there are, op- there are plenty of times where the salt has no more saltiness. As we close here, though, how do we answer this call of Christ to take up our cross? How do you answer this call? I mean, this is so heavy. Who can do it? You ever find yourself asking that? And then you ask, have I really given up everything? Let me think. How do we do this? Not only count the cost, but commit to this cost. How do we see our lives lived out as salt and light in a crooked and fallen world? Here's how. Here's the only way. Only with the help of the very one who's given the instructions. We don't have to do this on our own. We're not even told to do this on our own. Jesus said, with even these difficult instructions, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from me, we can do nothing. He, Jesus told us that you're not even able to do this without my help. Our answer is deep in the recesses of our heart. That's where our answer takes place. Deep in the recesses of our heart. And it goes something like this. Lord, I'm willing. Or, even when you're not willing, you do like F.B. Meyer told people to pray. Lord, I'm willing to be made willing. It's a great starting prayer. Lord, I'm willing. I'm pretty sure I'm willing. And where I know I'm not willing, I'm willing to be made willing. That's the prayer of a deep, sincere heart. And now help me. Just just like you cried out for salvation, help me to go forward to pick up my cross and to follow you and to love you more than anything else. This is not a salvation prayer. This is a Lord, I am entered in discipleship prayer. Do you realize if someone in the crowd had raised their hand and said something kind of like this? Jesus speaking to this crowd. Someone raised their hand and said something like this. Jesus, I don't think I can do what you're asking but I want to. I know I need to. Will you please help me do it? What do you think Jesus' response would have been? Without me answering the question, I got my own notes, but what do you think his response would have been? If someone raised their hand in a multitude and says, I know I want to do that. I know I need to do that. Will you please help me do that? What do you think his response would have been? Everyone says yes. And probably with a big smile, I was hoping you'd say that. You notice that's left out because he's looking for the response of what? The heart. You've all been in that class in grade school when you didn't understand a single thing that was on the chalkboard. But you were too afraid to raise your hand and say, I'm probably the only one here clueless, but what does any of that mean? I see some hash marks. I see some parentheses. Why is a little number above an X? And then the teacher says, I'm so glad you asked. And then you find out that half the class was thinking the exact same thing. Right? And the teacher says, I will help you till you understand it and know it. That's what Jesus is asking here. Amen? That's what forsaking all means. You say, Lord, help me. I want to do that. I must do that. I know I need to do that. I know it's your will to do that. Please help me do that. And after you skin your knees a lot, you'll see that you get more and more and more and more in line with forsaking all. Amen? Amen. Let's close. Father, we thank you.
once again, Jesus, for this time in your word. We know it's your heart, not only that all would be saved, you're not willing that any should perish, but Lord, even after we've been saved, you then give us the remainder of our life to follow you as disciples. We know it's your desire that we would all be disciples, and Lord, we know that we're so weak and so unable to complete it. Lord, we're afraid of failure, we're afraid of uh, what it would mean to love you. We don't know how to, what's the right balance between our families and the ministry and serving you and all these things. And yet, Lord, you promise to give clear, crystal clear guidance in every one of these areas if we simply say, Lord, we're willing. Help us to be willing. And Lord, that's my prayer for myself and my brothers and sisters. Lord, that we just recommit to taking up our cross and to following you. Lord, knowing that we're so imperfect in doing it, but Lord, with your perfect help, as you said through your servant Paul, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so Lord, we know that you wouldn't give us instructions without giving us the Holy Spirit to complete those instructions. And I just, before we, we're going to take 